Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. So um, I'm having to re-record my introduction for this guest because of some internet issues that we had and she definitely deserves a fantastic introduction. Her name is Caitlin Hollander from Hollander Bass Jewish Heritage Services and she's here from Long Island, New York. She is an expert on Jewish genealogy and I cannot wait to hear what she's got to tell us. <laughs> it's great to be here. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was a little bit about how you got started tracing your own family history. So I come from a family that's always been very interested in their family history. Um, my grandfather is really going to be one of the places where that started. He um, passed away in 2006, but before he did, he did a lot of work researching his own family history, um, actually hired people to help look into some of the branches of it, and among other things was actually able to recover and um, help restore an old Torah that had been basically fallen into disrepair since the Second World War and oh, really? donated to the um, to the synagogue in the town where his father grew up. And then my father has always very much been into it. I actually have a typewritten copy of a genealogy he wrote up about probably about 15 years before I was born. That's so really it's it's I it's always been one of those things where I grew up around it, but I also grew up in a family where like there was just some stuff that we didn't know. And that had a big question mark and I like answers to questions. I can really relate to that because it was my mum that got me into family history and it was um, her grandma that got her into family history so it's like I feel like it's in my genes is that how is that how you feel? <laughs> Absolutely and it's one of those things where I got into it I was young when I started and it just got deeper and deeper and now I'm doing it full time. <laughs> That's brilliant I don't, I don't think you can ever start too young actually can you? Oh young no not at all it's <laughs> yeah. So what you, you mentioned Torah there, so is your heritage mostly Jewish or, or a mix or? It's mixed, basically. It's mostly Jewish, but there's also branches out of Italy, out of Puerto Rico, um, one branch out of Scotland. It's really, it's, it's very varied, which means I'm dealing with a lot of record sets when I'm working on my own genealogy. Yeah, so you must have had to get to grips with um, uh, the way lots of different countries uh, record information and what's what's similar and what's different. That's really challenging. Oh, no, definitely. And especially when you're dealing with, because um, a lot of my ancestry, especially obviously the Jewish ancestry is out of Eastern Europe, because I'm dealing with so many shifting borders and different types of record sets, it really does. I have to be very, very familiar with the history of a region as well to just to know what's going on, because I'm very rarely dealing with borders that are the same even decade to decade. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. Could you tell me a little bit about um, some of your favorite finds or some of your favorite ancestors? In my own family, I mean, there are definitely ancestors that I really admire. Um, one of my great-great-grandmothers, um, she was the youngest child of, there were nine siblings in total, um, nine siblings that survived childhood. She was by far the youngest. She was the youngest by about eight years. Um, her mother mm -hmm. was in her 40s when she had her and died shortly after. And then uh, when she was a teenager, she would have been about 13 years old. Her father dies too. And so she's actually raised by her grandparents. And so she grows up, she's, it's a fairly well-off background and she ends up marrying the butcher. Okay. Um, and I have, I have a couple of photos of him. He was very, very handsome. It was always one of those funny family stories. And I 
started seeing photos and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get it, Grandma, you know. What sort of time period is this? Was- um, this is her father dies in 1897. She's born 1881. So we're we're talking, we're talking, you know, around the turn of the century, she marries him. And then when she's 31 years old and she has two children under the age of five, he dies of pneumonia. Right. And she doesn't remarry. She actually takes over his business and expands it. And she does very well for herself. She ends up becoming fairly successful and she does very, very well for herself. I love that. It's, it's great to find some women that have, have um, you know, carved a niche for themselves um, in a in a career because sometimes that can be hard to find. It's not that they didn't. It's just that sometimes it can be hard to find um, evidence of that, I think. Absolutely. And it's also, it's just such an interesting story for me. She's an interesting woman overall. She did end up remarrying when her children were adults and her husband then was actually Catholic. And this is a Jewish family in, to give you a little bit of background on where we're talking, we're talking Germany. So okay. this is my, my German Jewish, which is, uh, the word is Yekka, actually, to give you the term, family. So she remarries, and this is the 1930s that she marries him. Um, he well. dies a few years later. And she actually sits out the Holocaust in his sister was a mother superior of a convent. And she sits out the Holocaust in Germany in a convent. Wow. And so she survives. Does she... I mean, she was hiding in plain sight, though. She yeah. hid as a nun, as a fake nun. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so interesting and just so ridiculously cool, and as you can imagine, is a fantastic resource for me, is she actually brought all of her papers, her letters, her journals with her when she went into hiding. Oh. So I have the condolence letters from her uncles when her father died. I have the letters that her uncles were writing to her to read to her father when he's on his deathbed, and she's 15 years old. She's... Oh god, it's, that's like genealogy gold. <laughs> it's incredible. It's this woman. She didn't. She didn't throw anything away. She had the condolence card. She had her father's. I have a copy of my great 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 grandfather's original obituary in German. Wow, from eighteen ninety seven, and it's and photographs and just all of these different things. She ends up coming to the U.S. after the Holocaust, and she actually dies in New Jersey in nineteen fifty five. Wow, and just she had all of these books and papers, and I'm just. It's amazing, and it's. A little bit of slow going going through them and translating the German and understanding what's really going on but it's it's genealogy gold and it really it's just amazing and I also really get that pack rat mentality with keeping everything and keeping all of these letters and these just like the condolence cards when her husband's died and just everything it's yeah I certainly wish my family had kept things I, I I've got very little actually very very little documentation and and very few photographs as well so yeah I always get quite envious <laughs> But do you know what you're going to do with the collection once you've, once you've looked for it? How are you going to um, pass it along? to? I honestly have no idea. I haven't even thought that far just because it's so much to just go yeah. through and just sort of understand what's going on and establish a chronology. And really, I'm still getting at the meat of it. I'm not quite sure how to go on from there. It's step by step for me. You have to come back and tell us when you've, uh, when you've got through it. To Absolutely. It. Sounds really exciting. It is. Um. And I mean, obviously, you mentioned that your your grandma was in um, uh, Germany there, so there must be um, uh, some heritage that's that's really harrowing and um, really challenging to look into. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you how you deal with that, really? I mean, I always I'll start with the sentence that always makes people cringe because this it it really does make people wince. My grandfather was actually born 1937 in Leipzig, so it's it's. Not not a far off one for me. Um, my great great to 
this is my direct paternal lines, this is my holiday line. My great great grandparents were actually born in Poland, so in uh, Novi Sons and um, and Gorlitz, which are to give you a general idea of where those are, they're near Krakow. My great great grandfather was married twice, his first wife died, he had three children from the first marriage, five children from the second. And they ended up moving to Germany when my in 1914, so right right at the start of the First World War, which okay. makes sense when you think about Poland in that era. It's not the greatest place to be. So they moved there, established businesses. You know, they lived in Erfurt. And my great-grandfather's raised there, marries my great-grandmother, whose family I have in Germany back to Napoleon and before <laughs> Napoleon. It's <laughs> That line was... They were very, very Yekka. They were there for a very, very long time. They're very culturally Yekka. It's a cultural difference I can go into if you want, but it's so I have um, to give an idea. My great great grandfather on this line, Hiel, was one of 10 children who lived to adulthood. Um, his parents had about, give or take a few, about 116 grandchildren who lived to adulthood we're talking a very large family. Um, from my count and from what I've found so far, only 24 of those 116 did not die in the Holocaust. Those people all had children and grandchildren, in some cases, great-grandchildren. Uh, my mm -hmm. great-great-grandfather was a great-grandfather when he died. Uh, my great-great-grandparents were killed either in the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto or in Auschwitz. Um, there's no record of what happened to them. All that we know is the testimony of my great great aunt who is the only member of that cousin set to have been in Europe at the time and survived. Um, the other 23 were not in Europe. Basically all she knew is that after the liquidation they were gone. So they were either killed during or they were sent to Auschwitz. How do you deal with that? How do you carry on researching without getting sort of too dragged down into it where you where you just can't go on because it's just so bleak sometimes I have to take a break I mean I I've had cases where I've had to step back and say I need to take a break I need to breathe I need to look at something happy because this is not good um to give another idea of the eight siblings so there were eight siblings of my great-grandfather total who lived to adulthood from the two marriages of my great-great-grandfather um the first sibling set so there were three of them um Mendel, Fermetta, and Seema and Mendel had gone to the U.S. when he was a kid. Um, it's actually a terrible story. Apparently, my great-great-grandmother thought that this teenage boy was too much trouble and said, you get rid of him, please. Okay. And so, so my great-great-grandfather dutifully bundled up his 14-year-old son and put him on a boat to America <laughs> to go live with family he'd never met, which is terrible. But the two girls, the two sisters, were both killed. Um, Seema's husband and daughter and granddaughter were also killed. Um, the granddaughter, uh, Frania, was the same age as my grandfather. Wow, yeah. Um, she would have been three years old. Oh, God. And um, Frometta didn't have any children, but both she and her husband were killed. And then of my great-great-grandparents' children together, there were five total. Um, the oldest was my great-grandfather, who they survived. It's actually an interesting story I'll come back to. Um, okay. Then came Regina, who Regina went to Israel before everything, so she wasn't there. Um, Sabina, who was there, and she actually survived the Krakow ghetto. She survived Plazov, and she survived Auschwitz. She was an amazing woman. And then was um, Jacob, who he was killed. He died in Plazov. Um, 
and then the youngest, who was Emil, who became Edmund, who came to the U.S. and actually fought in that war. Mm. And, uh, he came in 38 and actually enlisted in the army. It's amazing how um, people's fate seems to spin on a dime, doesn't it? It's... I mean, going back to the way that my own branch survived, I mean, my great-grandfather was, so my great-grandmother's brother had gone to Uruguay okay. in 1937. So my grandfather's born in 37 February. And in 1938, uh, the Nazi regime actually deported all Jews with ties to Poland. Um, and I believe it was, it was September. September, I believe I might be off on that. It's October, September, October. I think it might be October. Anyways, um, and my great grandmother and my grandfather were part of that deportation. So my grandfather was deported as an infant, essentially yeah. to Germany, not to Germany, from Germany to Poland. Yeah. And my great grandfather and I don't know how he did this, but it's incredible. He was able to actually petition to get his wife and son back. Right. And in November of 1938, I have them arriving in Montevideo. So then they, they were together again, presumably. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. But everybody else, Perish. except for, there are a few members of the family that survived. Um, the one sister actually has a son who is still alive and coming up on 101 years old. Oh, wow. Have you met them? Uh, I have, yes. Um, there are a couple of just, I, I hate to say stragglers, but a couple of people who do pop up. But for the most part, it, and this is true for almost everybody whose family tree I've worked on and everybody I know out of this region, the family tree really does stop around 1942. When you see that, it's quite... It's quite incredible, for one of a better word. It's, it's terrible sense, not as in, you know. About 460-something names from my family. Wow. Okay. That is such a lot of people and such a lot of future lives that are, that are ended so abruptly, which kind of makes my next question really difficult. But if you could meet any one person, somebody, you'd, somebody you didn't meet, in, you know, when they were alive, who, who would it be and, and why? I mean, my great-great-grandmother, the one who was in the convent during the Holocaust, I'd very much have just liked to talk to her because I just, it, her life was so convention-defying for what she lived in and when she lived. Mm -hmm. um, one of my great-great-great-grandmothers, another one who lived a really difficult life, she actually outlived two husbands by the time she was 30. Um, she had, my great-great-great-grandfather had died in an accident, a building fell on him when she was 19 and he was 24 and she remarried and the second husband died of pneumonia. Okay, yeah. And when she was pregnant actually with her last child and I just, just the resilience of these women, just I want to talk to them and know what their yeah. lives were like and why they chose to, you know, not remarry, which isn't super typical for the time and places in which they lived and, you know, what, how did they live? How did they survive? No, I can really relate to that because my my great grandmother lost her husband um, fighting in World War Two. So mm. he he was um, a, a tank driver in uh, Tunisia, which is where he's buried, where he died. And um, they they had been married about seven years. She'd had my nan, and she was actually pregnant with my with my uncle, mm. uh, my great uncle, when he when he passed away. And she she never stopped talking about him all his all, all her life. I mean, she did she did remarry about ten years afterwards, but I think it was kind of a, a slightly different type of marriage. Uh, you know, um, although he's incredibly fondly remembered in our family as well. Um, 
but yeah, I would, especially with the pandemic going on. And I know like over here, when we started having um, food shops running out of food right at the very, very beginning, because people were panic buying, it really made me think of her and how, how had she coped with that worry and that fear and then losing your husband on top of that. And actually she was an incredibly resilient person and um, later in life went over, you know, in her eighties, she went over to Tunisia to visit his grave, which even in the 1980s, 1990s, that's still quite courageous, I think. So. Oh yeah. So I can, no, I totally relate to that. Do you, do you find that you're drawn to um, your female ancestors a lot? I really do just because I find a lot in genealogy, people don't, tell that story that much. People are so interested about following surnames and in Jewish genealogy and especially in most of my my ancestries from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's, you're not always looking at the father's surname being inherited. And also with, I'm Ashkenazi, with Ashkenazi genealogy, especially surnames are fairly recent for us. It's not, you know, most of, you know, I'm going back, you get back to the turn of the 19th century and you're dealing mostly with patronym. It's not as big of a thing. And when because so much of my family's from Austro-Hungary those records actually give more detail when you're looking at the birth record of a child um it's giving you a lot more detail about the mother's family than about the father's okay am I am I right in thinking that technically Jewishness is please correct me if I'm wrong that Jewishness is technically inherited from your mother your mother needs to be Jewish religiously 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 yes but um there's also it's an ethnicity so okay. because I'm working within, and the reason that the Austro-Hungarian records give more information about the mother is just, that's the way that they're set up. But it actually, when you're looking at the birth of a child, so like if I'm looking at my great-grandfather's birth record, it actually gives the parents and of my great-great-grandmother. So I can pull up his birth record and it gives his maternal, it doesn't give his paternal grandparents' names, but it gives his maternal grandparents' names. That's and so it is interesting and it, it yeah. makes the women a lot easier for me to track just because yeah, of that. Yeah, on its head, doesn't that? Like, did you, why, do you know why they do that? Why? I'm not quite sure. I, I know there's a reason. It's common in, in all of Austro-Hungary. It's not just in the Jewish records. It's in the other records as okay. well. But, it's not a religious thing. It's, yeah. But that gets mixed with another issue where um, Jewish, especially with Austro-Hungarian Jews, I'm um, not so much with Russian Empire Jews for a couple of different reasons and not so much with German Jews, but Yekka, because they like to follow rules. With Austro-Hungarian Jews specifically, um, a lot of the time you'll see a couple have their religious marriage, which is for all intents and purposes and for cultural reasons is the real one. And then they'll have the civil marriage a couple of decades later. I mean, we'll have people who've been together for 50 years finally getting married in their 70s with okay. the civil marriage. But according to the laws of the time, that makes all of the children illegitimate. Yeah. So the children are carrying their mother's last name. Okay, that's really interesting. And if they've been formally legitimized, they might take the father's name or they might not, but it can get really complicated with the surname thing. Again, because surnames are a fairly recent thing, it's, there's not, I don't want to say there's not as much attachment, but it's a little bit more fluid. Okay. Um, you'll also say like, see like synonym surnames pop up, but there's, for example, there's a sibling set in, one of my more distant branches where they this set of siblings all have they have four separate surnames okay and but they're totally legitimate surnames what happens yeah. is so the parents um will say are jones and smith and then the mother's parents have their the parent you know these two this couple has a kid and the child has the mother's mother's last name because the mother's parents haven't had a civil marriage okay yeah i, I yeah i'm trying and to then the, my head. <laughs> 
And then the mother's parents get married and the mother takes her father's last name. So now the next child has her father's name. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then she marries her husband, but her husband's parents aren't married. So she now she's using, now the next child has the husband's mother's name. Okay. Okay. And then finally the husband's parents get married and the last child is going to have the husband's father's name. So it's really, because surnames are a little bit more fluid. Hmm. Um, and also obviously because surnames get changed, it's a little bit, there's a little bit less attachment there. So there's less of a compulsion to go along that straight paternal line. Okay. Um, and I mean, the surname synonym thing is a common one. There's another family in the same area as my Hollander family who are Amsterdammer. Okay. Except when I go back about 150 years, it's the same people using those two surnames interchangeably. Okay, yeah, which makes And it sense. only gets yeah. locked in about the middle of the 19th century is when they finally decide, okay, well, you're Hollander and we're Amsterdammer and they're different. <laughs> okay, that's really interesting. So, so let me get this straight, right? So you're, you, you're tracing ancestry for, for yourself and for other people that crisscrosses, you know, different countries in Europe plus America plus um, Russia. Yeah. And you're also dealing with people whose surnames are completely fluid. Yes. And whose surnames honestly don't exist. I'm going to give a rough benchmark because it depends on where we're talking. But because what I focus on is Ashkenazi genealogy is completely different if you're looking at Sephardic genealogy. Um, but the surnames don't really become a thing until around 1800. Okay. So before that, we're working with patronyms. Okay. which is going to be a completely different universe entirely. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I know from a few Welsh, it's, it, it gets challenging. <laughs> yes. So what, what sort of things, so what kind of markers do you use to know that you're on the right track or that you found the right family? What kind of evidence do you look for to, to try and tie those, those people up? Like, have you... Is that where DNA's has DNA really revolutionized? No, 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 no. For yeah. for Jews, yeah. DNA can be a little bit more difficult, if anything. Yeah. It can complicate things because we're a fairly endogamous people. Yeah. Again, I'm speaking specifically to Ashkenazim. It's different for different ethnic groups of Jews. It, we're fairly endogamous, um, which can make cousin matches appear much closer than they actually are. Um, DNA can almost complicate things so just taking a step back for, for for anyone listening who's not not familiar maybe not done a dna test themselves could you so endogamy is basically there's a really high incidence of cousin marriages um just because you know there most places there weren't that many of us and so you marry yeah. who's there and you're usually a cousin. Uh, best example I can give, there's a couple in my family tree who get married. They are first cousins once removed once and second cousins once removed twice. Okay. okay. And so um, because of that, they're going to share more DNA than somebody. Yes. They're going to show much more related to each other. Yeah. It's, you know, if you have two people who exist, a brother and a sister and a brother and a sister, and those two sibling sets marry each other, their children are going to be more related to each other than your average first cousins, yeah. because they're first cousins twice. So basically, because you have a really long standing incidence of endogamy, and I mean, we're talking even like third cousins, they're going to be more related just because you're dealing with a smaller population. And you see this when you're working with any smaller population sets. Um, Iceland is a really good example, actually. Um, Icelandic endogamy is super rampant. Um, <laughs> when you're dealing, it, it, it is, it's just, it's yeah. certain no, it's area. Also, the 
described it as rampant. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it's it's very much, very much. It's um, but when you're dealing with more isolated populations, and usually you're looking at geographic isolation because of islands, but also just isolation through other for other reasons, for social reasons, religious reasons, etc. You're going to be dealing with a lot more marriage within the community than with populations that are more mobile. Not even mobile. Um, mobile is not the right word. That go outside of their community. I mean, basically, it's like as a result, you know, a Jew from one area, a Jew from, we'll say Vilna, is going to look more related to a Jew from um, Berlin than necessarily they are. Yeah. Which there have been studies that have come up where genetically it's something like fifth cousins, everybody, if everybody's 100% Ashkenazi, okay. which is even if they're genealogically not. So a lot of the time with DNA, I kind of have to step back and say, okay, well, this can indicate this. If we have a super high significant match, it can indicate this. Not all of these looser matches are irrelevant, but a lot more of them are going to be, and you're going to have a lot more looser matches just because sometimes people will show up as related just because it's a small community. Okay. And so if, <laughs> so if DNA hasn't revolutionized things, what, what sort of things do you use to try and make sure that you're... Um... In some ways, endogamy can actually be an aid for that. Oh, okay. is, it's going to sound very weird. Sometimes I, I, then I do this actually a lot. Um, I use endogamy as a tool because it tends to be that certain families, for lack of a better word, like each other a lot. <laughs> And so when you have a couple of families that, that my own family has a couple of branches where there are certain surnames that if those surnames are interacting with each other, I'm like, okay, this is my family. I don't okay. know how you're related, but these are fairly rare surnames and you really you like each together other all the time. You pop yeah. up together, you, you marry each other a lot. So what's going on over here? Okay. And because of that, it can help me find sibling sets that I'm not necessarily going to be looking at initially, especially when you're looking at people who've emigrated and on like a marriage record, they might not give their father's actual name. Lieb might be Lewis. Okay. And even if Lieb has never used Lewis in his life, his kid might say, oh yeah, my father's name is Lewis. Um, I worked on a case in New York with a set of four siblings who all made up different names for their father, <laughs> who was Gershon and everything from Philip I saw a couple of Philip, I saw David, they gave all different names for their father, mm. but because of who they were interacting with, and specifically in their case, their mother's maiden name, I was able to narrow down who I'm looking at. But a lot of the times I have to narrow it down by who they're interacting with. It can still be difficult because of a lot of Ashkenazi naming traditions, mm -hmm. um, but basically narrowing things down by occupation, mm -hmm. by different tangential things even signatures can be a really 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 good indicator um, my partner and I actually my business partner and I actually work a lot with following somebody using a signature we had a case a while ago where we were looking for someone and all we knew is that he lived in Chicago around a certain time period and his name was Sam Cohen <laughs> which in the Jewish world Sam Cohen is we're looking for John Smith mm -hmm. yeah I get it <laughs> it's but we were able to find him because the only document we did have related to him he had signed. Mm -hmm. And so essentially at one point we were going through every single draft registration card for a Sam Cohen in Chicago who mm -hmm. might've been around the right age and just looking at these signatures. And yeah. because of that, we were able to narrow it down. So sometimes it really does come down to just things that you wouldn't even think of because yeah. in non-Jewish genealogy, you know, the first thing you're gonna look at, oh, well, you know, he has to be the right age. You know, I have a first and last name, and if I find someone the right age, that's probably from the right place, it's probably him. Except, especially in Ashkenazi naming tradition, if somebody dies, we don't name 
people after living people because it's bad. Um, people die if you do that. It's it's very bad. It's mm -hmm. an old tradition. It's very bad. But when somebody dies, it's really common for everybody to name after them. Okay. So I was working on a, and we have a lot of double names. So double names get passed through families. Um, so I was working on one recently where it was a family in um, what's now Ukraine, what was then Austria-Hungary. And the name of one of the patriarchs of this family was Israel Nahum. And so he dies in 1893. And then all 11 of his children named their next child. <laughs> So now you have a whole bunch of boys with the same first and last name because all of these sons are naming their children yeah. after their father who are all within a year or two of each other's age running around the same village. And this is not a big village. This is a smaller village. I think they had 700 Jews total. I do, I do get that because I think that happens in in other, you know, um, genealogy as well. But it certainly happened to me, but not not necessarily because they've died, but just because they've all decided to name their first child John after John, their father, who also was called John after their grandfather. Um, and then like, uh, I've had a few instances where a, a child was probably sick. And so, and they've had a second son and they've also called that son John. And then the first John, the eldest son John has, has actually recovered. So you end up with two children born to the same family, their brothers both called John and you think, Surely that must have got really confusing around the kitchen table. Oh, see, that actually <laughs> brings me into another really weird, and this is again an Ashkenazi tradition. Um, okay. For us, there's an old tradition. It's a very old tradition where if somebody gets sick, um, there's a lot of traditions surrounding tricking the angel of death. It's actually also why you don't name a child after your parent, because if you name the child after the older person, when the angel of death comes for the older person, they might get confused and take the younger one too. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, That's that makes the sense. Idea. Or, you know, they babies get sick and die they might take the older person with the younger person. It, it, the angel of death is not all that bright and gets very confused very easily. It, it just is. There's a lot of traditions around like tricking the angel of death. So the other tradition that's very common is if somebody gets very sick, you change their name. Wow, okay, really? That's amazing. And it's common to add Haim or Haya, which both mean life. Aww. To the name, to, it's kind of a good omen. It's yeah. But the idea kind of is, you know, if the angel of death is coming and they're looking for Jacob, well, there's no Jacob here. There's just Chaim. So you can't take him because you're coming for Jacob, but that's not Jacob. I love that idea that, that something like that can give you hope. Like, like our lives are so out of our control now. Like, it, sometimes it's hard to comprehend just how out of control lives must have felt when we didn't have, you know, central heating and supermarkets and, and, and certainly over here, you know, welfare systems and, you know, and and also we're living through world war ii um so yeah i can i can totally understand how those kind of traditions develop within different community different traditions for different communities but i can totally i can totally see how that would how that it's, could develop you know it's a really cool one it's also a little bit frustrating because i mean if I, I had a recent case where we were looking for somebody the client had been looking for this specific person's death for about 20 years and it turned out that the person was buried with the rest of their family, but the family, the person had been very sick for several years. The family had completely changed the name. Right. Okay. And so, you know, I couldn't find them because I was looking for the wrong name. Okay. And so, so understanding that, that culture. Um, yes. 
so understanding the, the religion, the culture, the history, that's that's absolutely crucial to, to family history. 100%. And especially when you're dealing with, I mean, when we're dealing with anybody, but with the Jewish research especially, and even within the Ashkenazi community, which is not the whole Jewish community, but it's a fraction, it's a fraction I specialize in, you're dealing with a lot of different types of cultures within that. So, you know, a Yekka family, a German Jewish family, is actually they might actually have a child who's a junior named after their living parent. Okay. But the child will have a different Hebrew name because then the idea is, well, the Hebrew name's the one that counts. So um, there's a one of, I think my sixth or seventh great grandfather, Andreas was, he was Andreas Schweitzer in mm -hmm. German and he was Eliezer. And then he had a son who was Andreas Jr. But that son was Asher. Okay, yeah. So they had different Hebrew names. So it was sort of, there's a lot of negotiating that yeah. goes on sometimes. And so you're negotiating with the tradition. Well, they're not technically the same name. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I know some, in some um, uh, Catholic traditions, you might have um, several people with the, with several children with the same first name, but with different middle names. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be known as, yeah, you know, so Mary Teresa, you know, Mary Catholic. Oh, yeah. And I see that on my Italian line. Um, there's whole families where every single child is Maria. I mean, yeah. there are boys that are Maria. Oh, really? Boys as well? You do. You will see that a lot where you'll see a boy who's, you know, Maria Tommaso and okay, well, or Maria Giuseppe and it's okay. Yeah. And do you, does it ever make you wonder why that Maria was so important? Like why that particular well, name was so important? Is it obvious sometimes or? or in, sometimes with the Italian tradition, it's, it's the Virgin Mary. It's the religious. Yeah. yeah with, it's, with the Italian tradition, it gets very, very simple. With the Jewish tradition, I mean, it can be a lot of different things. It can be a family member that you really liked. There's a really, I would call it almost sweet, um, in my, one of my branches, and this is now Poland was Austro-Hungary. Um, there was a, my fourth great-grandfather had a brother. And the brother never married, had no children. He's actually noted in the censuses of the area as being um, deaf and mute. Okay. And he's actually living with his different family members, his his siblings are all they're taking care of him he's and no, he actually right. lives to a ripe old age he's like 89 when he dies which is which really is good for any time yeah. but for like the late 19th century in austria hungary that's really good yeah. and when he dies all of his nieces and nephews name a kid after him oh that's so sweet and it's like i'm looking at this and i'm like they had this uncle that they all grew up around who you know he couldn't really communicate just because of you know the time and the place we're not talking about the time and place with you know a developed sign language community yeah yeah, yeah. but he was able to to enough that they all loved him and they all really did they named a child after him so he was obviously very very important in all of his nieces and nephews lives and that's it can tell you a lot about where somebody is emotionally and then vice versa if somebody dies and then nobody names a kid after them i'm like <laughs> okay what did you do yeah. what what'd you do because you did something because <laughs> obviously nobody likes you and then you know there are certain names that are religious you know it's really common to name people um especially in like hasidic traditions after you know famous rabbis okay. that's one um i have a ancestor who's another one i'd like to talk to just because i want to know where his parents are because because when you're dealing with a family that is rosenbaum and goldberg okay. it gets a little bit more difficult to track them. <laughs> <laughs> but I have in his case, you have my you have my you know sympathies really <laughs> it, it's but with him he's named specifically after a very famous Hasidic rabbi okay. so it's it's 
it, it, the different names are different and sometimes it's just they like the name which also happens sometimes you just like the name uh it's Absolutely. all dependent um so so it feels like a bit of a random question now but it is on my list go for it do you, do you have like a lot of our focus has been um sort of 1850s sort of onwards do, do you have a, do you have a favorite historical period at all um it's i mean I definitely I enjoy the 19th century a lot. I enjoy 19th century Austria-Hungary a lot just because the record set develops so quickly and shifts so quickly there that it's really cool to see things sort of shift. Um, you can definitely see a lot of cultural influences change there. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I really it's almost it's hard because it's more I like certain places. I, I definitely have certain mm -hmm. places and certain like things I enjoy the most. But I really like deep diving in Belarus. Um, Belarus can get really interesting because they are, there are these Russian imperial censuses that are really fantastically intact for, I mean, in some cases, back into the 18th century, which is really, really cool. What, um, what kind of information do they have on them? What kind of um, Father's name, age, and then the rest of the family. Um, sometimes they're draft records so they only have the male members of the family sometimes they're actually censuses and they have the rest of the family members but it can help me push back a generation when i'm not dealing with a surname just because it will have the father's name on there okay yeah so it can it can help me push back and also it will have if somebody was in the household on the last census but has died since it will still have their name and when they died yeah. so even if there's not a death record surviving I might be able to get that information from a different source. So okay. I, I just, I enjoy them. Um, I always kind of get a little thrill when I can push back past that surname barrier because it is hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when, I once you're losing surnames and you're just dealing with, you know, you, you have a village of 800 and you're just looking for David, son of Jacob. Well, you can't. You just, at some point, it's just, you can't. And how has the... How do you think this pandemic will affect the, the future of genealogy? We're sort of talking about places. It always makes me think about the fact that it's so difficult, certainly here at the moment, to go visit places and visit the archives. Is, is it making things more challenging or? I'm hoping it'll bring things online more. I'm definitely having frustrations with certain countries. And I say frustrations, it's a bad word for it, but it's it can be frustrating just because I know that depending on where I'm looking at, I'm just not gonna be able to get a record. Um, I'm having that issue here with uh, the National Archives are still just not giving me anything because they're closed um, yeah. or they have been closed rather. I think they've reopened by now, but um, it's definitely frustrating. I'm hoping it leads to further digitization, which would make my life so much easier. Um, but it definitely, it's definitely been frustrating. Um, and, but, Again, just because of where I'm dealing with, sometimes it's even just the state of the world can cause me issues. Um, I have a contractor in Belarus who I've needed certain records from their archive, but at one point it was like, well, we can't. You know, there is a whole situation politically in Belarus right now. There might be a civil war, so we can't. Yeah, that's a really so, set of challenges that you face. Yeah, so, and, and just because I tend to deal with areas where you know I might be dealing with you know there might be a civil war there might be something blowing up it's can get a little bit complicated anyways I mean I deal with that anyways when I'm dealing with Eastern Europe just because a lot of the records I need burned at some point mm -hmm. somebody lit something on fire and now it's gone um, one of my ancestral cities 
is like that. There's just nothing. Um, the Tsar's army burned it during the First World War, so it's gone. It's what I need is gone. And it's very frustrating. I'm very upset about it. But. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's another one of those things, though, that brings brings home like the impact that war has there on so many different things and, and so many lives going forward that, that that's just lost. That, that there is no going back. You know, you can't undo things like that. It's sort of, mm-hmm. I don't know, for me, it brings it home. Anyway. I only really had one more, more, more question anyway, actually, because I thought it might be a nice way to wrap up just as we were we were talking. So what would you say to somebody who was thinking about starting their family history that might be a bit worried that now's not the best time? Would you say wait or would you say go for it? Or Go for it. You know, it's there's no time like the present. It's I always kind of say to people, you know, if somebody says, oh, I don't want to do this because by the time I'm done with it, I'll, you know, I'll be older. Or I'll, it, it'll take too long. Well, you're going to the time's going to pass no matter what. And you might as well do what you can now and then just work forward from there. It's. And what, what would you say to anyone who's sitting on the fence saying, I'm not sure, um, you know, I'm not sure I'll find anything interesting or I'm not sure I'll enjoy it? Everybody, everybody has an interesting family. Even if you don't think you have an interesting family, there's always something. There's always something weird and wild that you look at and you say, wait, what? Excuse me? What happened here? And there's always going to be, you know, what I refer to and I see discouraging people a lot, what I refer to as tiny tragedies, which are things that were just devastating at the time, but, you know, you don't even think about now and that nobody remembers really. And it's still it's still worth researching. It's still yesterday I was doing some work just digging on my own for no reason and I found a death record and I now know the Polish word for carriage because in this case it was two women who had been hit by a heavy carriage. They were sisters-in-law and they were they were run over by a carriage and they both died and I'm going through this record and I noticed these two women have the same last name and they're the same age and they die on the same day and I'm what's going on here and I spent a while you know figuring out what is this word what's going on and sort of slowly deciphering the situation. And I know now that this, you know, this would have been totally devastating for this family. Mm-hmm. These, But it's one of those things that this this event in history is just totally forgotten now. And you run into that a lot. Every family has, you know, something, something interesting. There's a article and I, you know, sometimes joke that most of my family were, they weren't fancy, rich, anything. They, you know, they lived in tenements and, in Italy, my Italian family planted beans, and th- in fact, the, they're classified as peasant farmers on the <laughs> Italian records, is the term, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> but I have an <laughs> article from the early 1900s about one of my great 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 grandfathers who was in Brooklyn, this has been around, I think, around 1917, and he was a milkman. And apparently, his horses bolted while he was going over a bridge that I go over in not pandemic times fairly frequently and his horses bolted and the milk got everywhere they ran over two policemen it was a whole nightmare he got thrown off the bridge and i was doing a little bit of research he was 24 years old he'd been in the u.s for two years he didn't speak a word of english according to the next census and i'm just it's it's just this this ridiculous awful thing he wasn't a milkman ever again after that which i'm pretty sure he probably <laughs> lost his job because he destroyed the carriage the horses bolted he lost all the it was just the whole nightmare and it got and i look at this, i'm like this is someone's worst day at work and yeah. then it got picked up by the associated press and i'm finding it in newspapers in wisconsin <laughs> and so sometimes you know if i'm having a bad day at work i'm thinking about it, i'm like you know what but but nathan Mursky 
his horse is bolted and all this milk fell all over the Williamsburg Bridge. It's it's almost funny. It's yeah, there is. I I know. I love that. I think that's a, a lovely note to end on. That you know, do your family history because you'll find hilarious worst days and you'll feel better there's always something there's always something interesting something weird something that you squint your eyes on and say that's not quite right that's and it really and my big philosophy with all of genealogy is that people don't change people are the exact same as they've always been everything that we think is new and oh you know people are rebelling people have always always done something unusual people's passions and people's you know emotions and their hobbies that doesn't change that is exactly the same as it's always been we just think it's new because nobody ever talks about it and a lot of the times you'll be going through records and you'll be like okay this this makes sense you know this is there are you know these they're real people they're not just names on pieces of paper they're people who laughed and they cried and they lived their lives and that's what's important so and they're all interesting even if they don't come off as it at first i love that thank you ever so much for your time i've really really enjoyed chatting to you thank you very much thank you if you enjoyed this video don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk